This is Need to Know. Real talk about the reality of unidentified aerial phenomena. From Australia, Ross Coltart. From the US, Bryce Zabel. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to episode 105 of Need to Know. My name is Ross Coulthard, and my colleague in crime and good buddy is Bryce Zabel in Los Angeles. How are you, Bryce? I'm doing great. It's great to be here. And by the way, um, for those of you who are keeping count, this is our fifth uh, Need to Know podcast. And Russ, people said it wouldn't last, but we've made it a month. Now, Bryce, I've got a guilty pleasure to confess. In the middle of the night, I'm known to go to my computer and look at quite profound images on my computer. And it's not what you think. I am obsessed <laughs> absolutely obsessed <laughs> with the James Webb telescope. Oh, thank right God. Now, thank God you said that. I was okay. All right. Okay. Right right now about 863,000 miles away there is this absolute miracle of human engineering. It's a marvel, scientific enterprise par excellence. It's chugging its way to an orbit a million miles away on the other side of the moon, away from the glare of the sun and the reflection of the earth. And it's going to do amazing things. And I, I guess at these somewhat dark times when we're looking at Putin amassing troops on the border with the Ukraine, President Xi getting increasingly bellicose over Taiwan, I think it's good to remind ourselves that there are some pretty amazing things in the world. And the, the James Webb telescope is just such a, a miracle of modern engineering and fingers crossed, crossed, touch wood. I hope it gets there. And I hope soon we're seeing images that may very well record interesting things, perhaps even evidence of other, non -intelli other intelligent non-human life. Well, it's it's certainly something to look forward to. And let's just hope that it's so complex, but we're all got our fingers crossed that it gets where it needs to be and it unfolds and aligns properly. I have to say, uh, if we're giving a shout out to the James Webb uh, telescope, I want to give one to the Hubble telescope, because over the years, the Hubble has just given us through NASA making them public domain images, just a host of the most spectacular images that you can imagine looking out into space. And we all remember that it was 1968 when that first picture uh, taken from the moon of the Earth, the famous Earthrise uh, picture, uh, made everyone feel like, wow, uh, we, maybe we are just one, all, one, one planet. And I think that the Hubble has extended that language for us by showing us a, a chance to see just how vast the universe is, how incredibly intricate it is, how amazing our universe is. And, and if indeed the James Webb is an escalation of that, oh my, I mean, I, I can't wait. I hope, it, I hope it lives up to all expectations, whether it reveals other forms of life out there or not. I'm sure it's going to give us some pretty awesome pictures. So I'm looking forward to that at the very least. Now, Bryce, let's roll back to amazing things that happened 77 years ago. It's the darkest days of World War II and brave bomber pilots from Bomber Command in the UK, brave young American lads and British lads are flying their bombers across Western Europe. And all of a sudden, out of the inky darkness, as if being frightened of potential Nazi fighters isn't enough, they start seeing these weird orbs, these spheres, often sometimes disc-shaped, glowing or metallic, and they called them Foo Fighters, and they're a mystery today as much as they were back then. And is it fair to say, do you reckon, that that was perhaps the beginning of the, the modern flying saucer era? I think that if we're going to get a calendar out and say, when did we tip over into the world that we're sort of living in today, it would be World War II, which is a demarcation line for practically everything. Uh, and possibly in a future podcast, we'll get into the ancient aliens aspect of all this. But for for our purposes, I would say 1945 and the Foo Fighters uh, and, and the fact that American pilots saw these things and thought that they were German. But after the war, we realized the Germans uh, thought they were ours and nobody had any idea whose they were. Uh, that makes it a pretty profound thing that was happening even in the final days of World War II. And of course, Foo Fighters um, also gave us the name of the band. So that was a good added bonus. So all good. <laughs> 
Now, I want you to bear in mind, listeners, the key observations that were made by pilots that saw these things, the air crew that saw these things back during the Second World War. They were wingless. They were tailless. They had no visible exhaust, no visible propulsion system. And then roll forward a year. I've been doing some research, Bryce, into what were called ghost rockets, which were these thousands of objects sighted all over Scandinavia in 1946, a year after the war ended. And all over Scandinavia, there was almost a public panic that occurred in the summer of 1946 across Scandinavia, Sweden, Finland, Norway. People were seeing these weird objects that were in the sky, no wings, no tail, same thing again. And they sometimes described them as having a fiery tail, but they were all consistently described doing incredible maneuvers, tight turns, extreme speeds, turning on a dime. And they were never, ever properly explained. Were they? They, they never were. And, and in fact, uh, the United States spent, sent some of our top generals over there, including Doolittle, to look into it. And uh, while the S- Swedish government did look very heavily into this, and there were thousands of these sightings, as you mentioned, there were even uh, reports of landings and, and all kinds of maneuvers. Um, the Swedish government at the end of that at least released the announce of their investigation. Many of our uh, memos that were written got classified, some of them for many, many years. But the Swedes said, uh, this doesn't look to be uh, Russian. It doesn't look to be uh, any technology that we're capable of generating here on Earth at this time. So they took a position that even back then, we were talking about some kind of uh, otherworldly kind of technology. And I think that uh, one of the things we wanted to do with Need to Know is sort of give people context as we kind of build out toward uh at least trying to explain where we are and where we might be going with this phenomenon. Think of it this way, folks. 1945, uh, you've got the world of World War II. You've got German and American and British pilots all reporting things that they call Foo Fighters. And it's not incidental. It's not a small thing. It's a big thing. Lots and lots of reports. The war ends. We, bl- we blow up two nuclear bombs uh, over Japan, but life goes on, except less than a year later, we start getting these ghost rockets in Sweden of all places. Why Sweden? No one really knows. And what we'll be getting to later in this program is when the United States sort of ticked off its beginning in 1947. But for now, let's pivot back to 1946 and these ghost rockets, because Ross, I'm really kind of interested in what you're turning up these days. Yeah, well, I've I've been doing a lot of work on it, Bryce, because I'm now an academic, my friend. I've I've been invited by a Danish political history magazine, and I don't speak Danish, so they're going to do the translation for me, to write a paper for them about the UAP phenomenon. I I thought it would be a really good thing to look at the ghost rockets. And the thing that really strikes me, and the rejoinder I often make to people when they often say, the debunkers or the skeptics, they often say, oh, how come... How come there's nothing in history to show that, you know, this has always been around? How come these UFOs are only only turning up now? They weren't. And the fascinating thing about these Foo Fighters, these ghost rockets in 45, 44, 46, is a lot of the descriptions of them accord with what are now being referred to as the cylindrical, tic-tac, white, metallic-shaped craft that was recorded by the US Navy in 2004 and and indeed more subsequently uh, in ways that can now no longer be refuted by the debunkers and the skeptics. And I I went back, there's a guy called Timothy Good who did some fantastic work in a book book called, funnily enough, Need to Know. And he wrote a a great book, which basically explored the early history and went through the American archives. And he found an American archival document that said from Sweden's Air Intelligence Service that these Foo Fighters, this phenomena, quote, are obviously the result of a high technical skill which cannot be credited to any known culture on Earth. That was the Swedish intelligence services. 
That's what I'm that's what I'm saying. I mean, when you that's black and white, that's in a report that uh, you can look up right now and read. And uh, for them to say that, it's not like they didn't exhaust the other options. Uh, of course, everyone back then, the first thought was, well, it must be the Russians. Maybe they absconded with these German scientists and they've cooked up these things. But the technology never continued in that same way from that same point in time. They were kind of a one-off at that particular moment. And certainly nobody thought Russia in 1946 uh, after fighting a war where their country was strained to the max and where 20 million, I believe, of their citizens died, no one seriously thought Russia and a few German scientists were, were, were doing these things. And they certainly weren't making things that uh, were capable of what you just described. Uh, what we've heard described about the Tic Tacs uh, recently, uh, same kind of words, same kind of descriptions back then, uh, very mysterious and um, and, and mysterious today. In other words, what I find interesting, and the reason that we wanted to sort of start with this, folks, is that here you have a situation where we're, we're hearing the same kind of words used to describe this phenomenon back in 1946 that we heard in 2021 in the UAP preliminary report. I wish we'd made more progress toward this, and I wish people had paid more attention back in 1946 uh, and, and talked about this openly. Although I think, Ross, you would probably agree, uh, the people uh, who were investigating it for the United States probably did pay a lot of attention to it. They just didn't bring the rest of the public in on it. Well, I, I've got a theory, Bryce. I have a theory that for the vast bulk of the military in all of these Western countries that are dealing with the phenomenon, Okay, there are a few people that I suspect know a hell of a lot more than they're letting on. But I suspect more often than not, they just don't like admitting they have no bloody idea what these objects are. And so they they contrive to come up with explanations. And back in 46, 47, the explanation that was given by the Swedish intelligence services and the US Air Force was that everybody was wrong. They were misguided because... A missile without wings is unable to maintain a constant altitude over hilly terrain. You know, therefore, that they must have all been deluded. And of course, it was 40 more years before radar-hugging, terrain-hugging cruise missiles were developed by the US military. Whatever this was, was technology far beyond that era. And I, I find it interesting because, as I think you know better than I, there's, there's been some really interesting sightings over Sweden in the last few yes. days. And, and they've been referred to, the semantic label interests me, they've been referred to not as UAPs, they've immediately been defaulted to in the same way back in 46, they were called rockets, ghost rockets, right. when they weren't really rockets at all. Not what are they calling them this time? Uh, I think they're calling them drones, aren't they? Yes. And, and what I think is very interesting is when they called them ghost rockets, they were neither ghostly nor rockets, as you pointed out. Uh, that was just a phrase that attached to them. But certainly the behavior that uh, ascribed to the, this phenomena was hardly rocket-like. Uh, I think maybe it was uh, because it, there was a belief that uh, earthly powers had to make them and we were making rockets at the end of World War II. Um, and now, of course, you're right, it's drones. And I think the one message that people uh, should hear and, and, and that we should admit is nobody is ever saying that all of anything is uh, uh, on the scale uh, as being paranormal or abnormal or otherworldly. There are lots of drones out there today, and these drones are a terrible problem for various militaries. But drones do not explain the behavior that people are seeing all over the world right now, uh, any more than uh, rockets explain the behavior that they were seeing in Sweden and soon uh, to come in your country, Australia, and my country, United States, uh, just a year after the, the, the ghost rocket. So we, there's something going on here. What it is ain't exactly clear. Yeah, and so that to me is a key point, that, that often throughout history, there's been a, a default use of semantics to try to make whatever these objects are sound prosaic, when really they weren't rockets. The evidence is overwhelming that back in 1946, whatever it was, wasn't a rocket. 
It didn't display the characteristics of a rocket. And roll forward to today, right now in Sweden, there's an admission that whatever this is, they don't behave like normal drones. And I think we're probably coming to the end of the first segment of Need to Know. So I think we'd better wrap and we'll come back with more in a moment, more on Need to Know about what I think we'll call the summer of 1947. I'll go you one better. Let's call it the summer of the saucers. Stay with us. We're back in a moment because you need to know. Well, we're back for the uh, second part of Need to Know with Coltheart and Zabel. We're kind of taking a, a chronological view of the early days of this phenomenon. Uh, of course, we talked about the uh, Foo Fighters of 1944-1945. We talked about uh, the ghost rockets that appeared over Sweden in 1946. And now we're going to move into 1947, which, frankly, uh, is the one that most history books acknowledge as the time when the whole UFO topic took off. But it wasn't called UFOs back then. Uh, they were called flying saucers. And 1947 is a major, major year because not only is it uh, a time when the very first major American sighting happened and it ricocheted around the world's media, but for our purposes right now, we want to talk about it because it's a good anniversary, 75 years since this event happened. And we'll tell you about that event in a second. One thing I'd like to point out, the average human lifespan is 73 or 74 years. It's been a little affected by the coronavirus. But what that means is this phenomenon uh, has been going on longer than a human lifetime. And we're still uh, essentially knocking about in the dark, and it's probably time for that to end. So, Ross, I look forward to uh, walking through down memory lane on, on 1947. What say you? I'm going to stake a flag here, Bryce. I'm <laughs> going to make a claim. I think that the first incident in the summer of the sources in 1947 was, interestingly enough, in Australia. Mm. Roll back, roll back to February 1947, because when I was going through the Australian National Archives, I was amazed to find a series of incidents of sightings of what appear to be the same objects. There's a farmer way, way down in southern Australia, South Australia, on what's called the Air Peninsula, and he's looking out over the ocean. And he gave a very clear account of what he saw. His name was Flavel, and he saw five oblong, egg-shaped, dare I say, tic-tac-shaped objects coming up out of the sea with a kind of a smoky, bluey, greyish cloud around them. Interesting, huh? But it gets better because about uh, 260 kilometres to the northeast of where he saw them, about an hour later, three workers are sitting in a factory. And there's actually two gr different groups of workers in the same factory who each independently corroborated each other. They also see five oblong egg-shaped objects, metallic sort of surface on them, zooming overhead. It gets better, though. Hmm. Because two, month, two months later, that'd be probably maybe April, and this is getting close to the big incident that took place in the US, April 1947, a farmer looks up and he's a clever fella. I think he'd seen military service. And so he was able to estimate the speed of these objects. He estimated what he saw at at least 1,000 miles an hour. And again, five oblong egg-shaped objects in formation, flying along very low to the ground, zooming past him on his tractor as he was in his fields. And so there we are, mate. It all started <laughs> in Australia. I, I, I don't deny it. <laughs> I think you're right. There's some great cases before the June 24th Kenneth Arnold sighting, which I'm going to unpack in a moment. But Ross, I got to tell you, you are such a fine storyteller. I think we should write the need to know children's book and you should narrate it for Audible <laughs> because uh, I'm sure we'll make a killing with that. Listen, not only are you right about that, but you're really right. 
uh, there were sightings around the world uh, in 1947. It began an uptick. They were isolated, though. Uh, there were a few in the United States. But as I said, June 24th is the red letter day in the United States. But prior to June 24th here in the United States, I just wrote down a few of the cases. There was a June 2nd sighting in Delaware, the 12th in Idaho, the 21st in Spokane, Washington. On the and 23rd, what were there were, uh, they were seeing... Uh, what you're describing. In some cases, they were uh, the, the sort of egg-shaped craft. In a few cases, they were the, um, well, just sort of the standard thing that we're, you know, we're about to get into where people might be able to describe it as a saucer. Uh, those were turning up. Uh, they were, there, there were different sightings. And in fact, I, that's a great question. And I don't have the info in front of me, uh, but I do have the dates. So Iowa, Bakersfield on the 23rd. So the point I, I guess I'm making is that prior to where we, the, the, uh, the media and the calendar say, this is where it all began, it had already all begun. Um, June 24th, Kenneth Arnold, who was an Idaho native, I believe, and he's a private pilot, he takes off in his plane to uh, look in the Mount Rainier area of Washington state because a, uh, a major military aircraft had gone down there earlier and they were offering a $5,000 reward if anybody could find it. So he thought that would be a pretty fine thing if he could find it. He didn't find it, but what he found was something very similar to your Australian sighting. Uh, instead of egg-shaped objects, though, he saw nine uh, objects, uh, and they were traveling, uh, I, I guess he would call them, he called them crescent-shaped in, in some reports. They were traveling according to him, and he knew how to do this uh, by, by spotting uh, in the distance. His first number came up as 1,700 miles per hour, which he thought, well, that's just crazy. That can't even be. So he put all the lower numbers in and came up with 1,200 miles per hour, which was still pretty extreme. These nine uh, craft were flying in formation, and uh, it, it made quite an impact on him. He landed. Uh, he told the people at uh, the airport there about it. Then he got back in his plane and flew on to Idaho. And when he got uh, off his uh, plane in Idaho, there were media people there wanting to talk about it. Now, what, what has led to a little bit of confusion over the years is Arnold described the motion of this craft not, uh, I mean, he described the motion, not the look originally, and said it was skipping along like a saucer would if, you, if it was skipping over water. But of course, the media immediately started calling them flying saucers. And, and frankly, that caught on and, and just ricocheted worldwide. And the thing about it is it did start people thinking about it. Uh, it, it made everybody talk about it. It was a certifiable big thing. And more people started seeing things. But you could only attribute a little bit of that to the idea that, well, maybe they were making it up or maybe they had war nerves or whatever was said at the time. But there were sightings after sightings after sightings around this time. And of course, which we'll get to in a minute, uh, a couple of weeks later or less, there was Roswell in New Mexico. So back to you. Okay, well, the thing that fascinates me, and I always love coming back to dusty archives because they're like a definitive record of what really was going on at the time. And the archives record, I think in early 1947, General Nathan Twining wrote ah. a memo about this era where he basically said, whatever it is, it's real. Have you got the quote in front I of you? I do have the I, quote I think... here. Um, I'll tell you, you know, we have the, um, the Trail of the Saucers site on Medium where people, we write articles. And one of our most popular ones was the one about Nathan Twining saying the 1947 Twining UFO memo still matters. And here's why. After an entire summer of this, on September 24th, which he's technically only three days out of summer then, uh, General Nathan Twining, who was head of the U.S. Air Force Material Command, which was a very big deal. And he had been tasked to, to bring all this information together and reach some conclusions. His conclusion, based on talking to all the people who had reported to him, was, quote, the phenomenon reported is something real and not visionary or fictitious. Now, that, again, sounds to me very similar to what the uh, UAP report that we got uh, 75 years later. But one other thing I just wanted to read from his report, because it's important to understand what he was actually describing, what people were describing to the Air Force they were seeing, because you ask about, well, what did they look like? It's, it's, uh, it's also what they did. Uh, in, 
in the clear language of his report, he writes, the reported operating characteristics, such as extreme rates of climb, maneuverability, particularly in roll, and action, which must be considered evasive when sighted, lend belief to the possibility that some of the objects are controlled either manually, automatically, or remotely. So some kind of intelligent control of these objects. And this was the conclusion of the highest levels of the United States Air Force in 1947. Now, again, the, the Twining memo is kind of a big deal. There's another memo out from that time that basically says the same thing from a Shulgin, a General Shulgin. And in between, though, in order to get there, uh, all kinds of things was were happening uh, in the United States, but also around the world, as you pointed out. You could easily say that from a UFO sighting point of view, all hell was breaking loose. But the one thing I want to point out, and I, I said it earlier, but I want to underline it, you can't just throw them all out and say, well, you know, people were a little on nerves after World War II and maybe they were seeing things or they read it in the media and they wanted to uh, make some conclusions about that. And maybe maybe they wanted to bring up things. But the truth of the matter is, I'll give you two things that happened in that summer prior to uh, that memo being read, written. On July 4th, a couple of uh, United Airlines pilots saw something rather large, following them for a very long time. Uh, They talked about it. And let's face it, these are United Airlines pilots. They were not, uh, they were good witnesses and there were others on on board. And the day after that, uh, in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, which happens to be a nuclear facility in the United States, a very important one at that time, they saw these objects uh, in overflight above the Oak Ridge facility. So those are those are not average uh, citizens just out to get in the local newspapers. Those are United Airlines employees and employees of the United States government tasked with watching over uh, what we are doing with our nuclear assets. So it was a pretty hopping time in 1947. Yeah, I don't want to get bogged down in this, Bryce, because I know you want to talk about Roswell, but I think it's significant that this, and I love this moment in American history because. There's something about that post-war era. People had so much trust in their military, but the military also was, whilst it was so highly regarded, it it was so candid. I mean, that memo from Nathan Twining, the general, is quite extraordinary because it's a level of candor that we haven't seen in 70 years. Yeah, but but Ross, I I, said it. I'm sorry to interrupt. I just, here's the thing though. Yes, it's a candid memo, but it was not written to be shared with the public. It was written only for the military. And that Twining memo was not revealed to the United States public until 1975, when during a period of some openness, the uh, the Freedom of Information Act allowed a lot of UFO researchers to get their hands on things. So even though- And, and, uh, and, yeah. and crucially, the, the other yes. point I would want to make is that, yes, you're right. That memo was written in secrecy right. publicly. And this is the interesting thing. Publicly, the U.S. Air Force, when it became the U.S. Air Force in '47, was pushing the line that all of this was just a big fuss about nothing. Yeah. That, frankly, the public were misguided. They were saying yeah. publicly that the public alarm was completely and utterly out of control. There was no need for it. Everybody was misidentifying things. It was all prosaically explained. Frankly, that was a lie, wasn't yes. it? Well, not only it Yes, it was. And that's one of the reasons I really responded to your book in plain sight, because one of the things you point out uh, over and over is why governments, not just the United States government, but other governments around the world were saying one thing they were uh, uh, to the public. They were saying another thing to themselves. And that is kind of the definition of lying. If you believe one thing, but you're not being honest about it. Uh, one other thing struck me, as you said, uh, you, you tossed off that in 1947, that's when the Air Force was created. Here's one other reason 1947 is a red letter date in uh, UFO and security history. In 1947, uh, it was the creation of the United States Air Force. It, in during World War II, the air power that helped win that war was the Army Air Force, and it became its own branch of the government in 1947. But that's not all, folks. In 1947 is also the time that we created the Central Intelligence Agency here in the United States. And it's also the same year that we created the National Security Agency in the United States. 
So yes, there was a lot of reason to uh, to think about reorganizing for future conflict because of World War II, but maybe there was even more at work. One of the things, by the way, as you start to read these things, you realize Harry Truman, who was president at the time and was until 19, January of 1953, he only made a couple of statements about UFOs. Uh, one of them was he said, well, to the extent that UFO flying saucers are real, uh, I'm paraphrasing, I can guarantee that we don't make them, which was also true today and also reflected in the UAP report we just saw. But Harry Truman demanded that he be briefed on UFOs every three months and was briefed every three months orally. Nothing was ever written down, which, by the way, is, as you know, Ross, from security uh, points of view, uh, nothing written. It's better to, to keep it in, uh, in, in oral discussion. So here's Truman, uh, who, if there was nothing to flying saucers and there's no big deal about it, I don't know why you need a a regular briefing. That doesn't seem to make so much you've, sense. So you've got the CIA, the Air Force, and the NSA all created in 1947. But there was one other event, wasn't there, Bryce? <laughs> you tell me what happened. Well, Take listen me to that July 4th weekend. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Americans were, you know, rightfully celebrating their freedoms in uh, 1947. They had fought hard and shed a lot of blood and treasure to guarantee those. So during the 4th of July weekend, they were pretty happy to be having uh, barbecues and getting back to normal life. And that's also the time, right? Smack in the middle of this crazy summer of 1947, that something crashed outside of uh, Roswell, New Mexico. There's no doubt that something crashed. That's what's interesting about the story. Um, we can we, we can certainly talk about Roswell and whether we should or should not believe it was the crash of a UFO. But I will tell you this. In uh, July of 1947, uh, the, the uh, U.S. Air Force Base there went out and picked up something. They put out a press release saying they had captured a flying disc. And three, di uh, th three hours later, they took it back. Um, so kind of an interesting thing to have happen uh, in, the, in the middle of this. And over the years, uh, more and more people have come forward and talked about it. Um, family members have talked about how their, their loved ones told them what had happened. Uh, it's, it's a pretty solid case uh, by any stretch of the imagination, because to not believe in Roswell, uh, you'd have to believe that um, intelligence officers who were tasked with understanding everything about what we might face from an enemy so mistook uh, a weather balloon uh, that they thought it was a flying saucer. And these people, you know, this was their job. I find Roswell fascinating, and I think we should go into Roswell in a bit more detail. But yeah. let's take a break now and come back with more on Need to Know in a moment about the Roswell crash, the origin myth of modern ufology. Welcome back to segment three of episode 105 of Need to Know. So Bryce, we were talking about the greatest incident in UFO mythology, the Roswell crash, so-called. Ross, you're the storyteller. Tell us the story of Roswell. Well, what we do know, Bryce, for sure, is that just after that 4th of July weekend, on or around the 5th of July, 1947, a farm manager named Mac Brazel was touring the farm and found what he called crash debris, a huge furrow that looked like something huge had hit the ground and carved a gouge across the farm that he was looking after. And he took some of that debris into the local police and it was eventually taken to the Army Air Force Base at the Roswell 504th Army Bomb Wing. And then all hell broke loose. Oh, my God. When you talk like that, Ross, it makes me say, <laughs> I'll just I'm going to just go downstairs and get a Coke and I'll just let you finish this out. That's too good. Listen, I, the one thing I would have to say is you referred to Roswell as the original myth. And in a way, I know you don't mean it that way, but myth 
strikes me as sounding almost like, well, it didn't happen. It was a myth. Uh, I look at Roswell as the original sin of the UFO cover-up. Um, let me let me put a little pin on that. Um, I think what happened at Roswell, and then we'll get into some, you can tell that beautiful story uh, that you started there. I think what happened at Roswell is something did happen. Uh, I think it was otherworldly. And I think that it was early on and there wasn't a good reporting structure for how to deal with this. And they kind of uh, botched it a little bit and then they tried to take it back. And what ended up happening is they discovered uh, what they would need to do to keep this thing uh, in the box. And that was the twin pillars, I think, of, of keeping UFOs uh, highly classified and in that box. And th those pillars were denial and ridicule. So the first thing that they discovered was denial. But it didn't happen. It was a weather balloon. And then ridicule came it to, to pass over the next few years. And pretty soon, not only was Roswell forgotten, but anybody that even saw a flying saucer by the time we hit the mid-50s is being marginalized for being a little bit crazy. So to me, it's the but original can, can sin. I, can can I interrupt for a moment yeah, here? Yeah, I, 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 my, my reading, I, I, I don't know what to make of Roswell, but on my reading, Mac Brazel, the farmer who allegedly found this wreckage in June, July 1947 and took it in to the local police and it eventually got delivered to the Army Air Force, all he found were metallic foil, strange lightweight beams with writing on them None of that sounds like a, a flying saucer. You know, nothing sounds like a craft or anything like that. So as I understand it, the thing that always leapt out at me was if all he found on the ground at the time were strange bits of foil and strange lightweight beams, isn't that more consistent with a weather balloon? And yeah. where the hell did the Army Air Force get the disc that they admitted in their original press release was recovered. Why did they put out a press release saying a flying disc had been recovered, which of course the media then interpreted as a flying saucer? Why would they? I mean, to this day, I don't know. I will tell you that uh, Stan Friedman, who was uh, the, not only, he's the man who broke the story, uh, a famous UFO researcher who passed away a couple of years ago. He thought that there were two crashes and that the uh, press release uh, was really a, a way to say, look over here while they were still cleaning up over there. Uh, that's what Stan always believed. Um, why would, so that's, a, uh, that's the only good reason I could say they could do it unless it was just simple. We don't have a policy for this, so we've got one. So we're going to talk about it. What do you think? Well, why couldn't it be what the US Air Force subsequently claimed it was when they came out with their third, I think, explanation out of the four that they've given so far? Because they have, they've tied themselves up in knots. They've admitted that they've lied over the years. But the reason that they've given for lying about Roswell originally was ostensibly because what they were trying to conceal was that it was a secret spy balloon, a mogul balloon that was being used to fly high in the atmosphere to recover radioactivity, to test for what type of nuclear weapons the Russians were using. Now, why isn't that a plausible explanation for what happened at Roswell? Well, I mean, okay, uh, on one level, it's a plausible explanation, but I think you've we, we've, we've got to go back and explain what the U.S. Air Force has actually said about this over the years. They, as you rightfully point out, there's been four stories they've told. The first story was the one that they reported first. Maybe they accidentally told the truth when they said, we've got a flying disc, but that was number one. Three hours later, they said it was a basic weather balloon, and they literally posed Jesse Marcel in front of all that material. Then and he in, and he and he said subsequently it was all BS and he'd been told yes. to lie and, and what he saw was he a certainly disc. looks like he's he's having to tell a lie if you look at the photos and that's the man who in 1978 told Stanton Friedman uh, uh, all about it and that's why Friedman broke the story in 78. 
The third explanation that the Air Force came up with was, oh, it was a highly classified balloon uh, that was being used in the in the nuclear age to try to um, assess what the Soviets were up to with their nuclear weapons. And then their fourth explanation uh, was that they were crash dummies, but not just crash dummies from 1947, but that there were crash dummies in the 1950s uh, and people had gotten that confused. So I'm sorry, that does not sound to me like anybody that's trying to come clean about it. Not to mention the fact that the uh, base records for the period from 1947 through, I believe, uh, late 48 are just missing. They're gone. So I'll confess, Bryce, I'm agnostic. I'm agnostic on Roswell. I'm not sure of anything other than the fact that there was definitely a cover-up. The US Air Force lied. Yes. It's lied so many times and tied itself up in knots. Its credibility is completely well, shot on the subject. Okay, Ross. I mean, I'll give you that. Um, and and look, I don't want to be the guy that's the only guy out there on the limb going Roswell, Roswell, Roswell. I'm just saying it's a far, far better case than people have given it credit for. And it has been unfairly tarnished over the years uh, for a well, variety I, I, of reasons. One of the people I spoke to in my research for the book was Don Schmidt, who... Yes has had his ups and downs on the, on the subject matter, but but he told me about the affidavit that he and Kevin Randall managed to get signed by Walter Hout, who was the public relations officer for the Army Air Force Base, the 504th Bomb Wing, who incidentally were the people that dropped the bomb on Hiroshima yes. and Nagasaki. And Hout claimed that he was shown yes. by his commanding general in the Air Force Base later that day, later that week, a craft, a disc that had been recovered from Roswell. And he claimed to his deathbed, literally, that there'd been a cover-up, didn't he? Well, now you struck very close to home for me. I, in full disclosure, because that's what we're about here, um, I have Don Schmidt's book, Witness to Roswell, under option, and I have Stanton Friedman's book, um, uh, top secret magic under option, both of which are about the, the Roswell case. What happened is these two research researchers, uh, Stan Friedman on one side and Don Schmidt on the other, in the 90s competed to break this Roswell story. And uh, it did turn out that Walter Hout, the public information officer, was uh, uh, Schmidt's top witness. It did turn out also, as you point out in your book, that the, the, um, the affidavit that Walter Hout uh, signed was signed literally on his deathbed and Don Schmidt wrote it. Now, Don Schmidt wrote it based on what Hout had told him. He was incapable of, you know, writing it himself at that time, but, you know, he signed it and, and, and said it was the real thing. But here's the thing. If you look at the research done by Stan Friedman and Don Schmidt and his various partners, they have turned up hundreds of witnesses. Now, is there the singular witness who says, okay, from the beginning, this is what I did, then I did this, then I did this, and tells the Roswell story. Maybe you won't find that. But what you will find is what I call the mosaic pieces. You'll find these 300 witnesses, each one filling in a different piece of the mosaic. Uh, we had to fly it up to Wright-Patterson. Uh, we loaded it, the, it here. We had somebody do this. And as I said, I think earlier, even my own father, um, before he passed on. I had a show on NBC called Dark Skies that had a lot to do with Roswell. And my father uh, had come back from the war. And uh, one of the guys who was in his uh, army unit called him up and said, you know, that show your son's doing, you should tell him to keep at it. Because I got transferred to Roswell after um, the war. And I got to tell you, it was no weather balloon. We all knew it. Everybody knew it. It was something extraordinary. And it was treated as such. So you know, I just have a lot of I have a lot of passion to say it's not a closed case and I don't want to make fun of them because I feel like there were a lot of real witnesses that had a lot to say about it. You know, Bryce, about two or three years ago, I would have scoffed and said, oh, rubbish, you know, it's just a Cold War story. You know, people right. have conflated secrecy that was surrounding a legitimate Cold War project. But the more I talk to my current sources in the US intelligence community, in the defense community, and in private aerospace, the more convinced I am, also from the public comments of certain people, most recently, Hal Putoff did an interview with Eric Weinstein, dropping big hints about 
recovered technology in private aerospace. I'm becoming more and more sure of a suspicion that something was recovered in that period, 47 through to the early 50s, possibly multiple craft. As you know, in my book, I talk about a guy called Nat Kobitz, who was the former director of science and technology for the US Navy. And he, on his deathbed as well, quite literally, gave me a statement where he talked about how he was briefed into a program that the US government has continued to operate where they are allegedly trying to back engineer multiple retrieved craft. Uh, Ross, that's I, the I, I, I find it. I find it does my head in even saying that no, because listen, it seems preposterous. I, 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 we have all traveled that distance. I have traveled it myself, and I'm sure that many of the people who are listening to us right now may be on that same road where they're saying, "Are oh, these guys? What are they smoking?" That doesn't seem quite right. I get that, <laughs> uh, but um, one of the things we should remind everyone is New Mexico in the 40s, uh, mid to late 40s. Well actually during the 40s, was a hotbed. And it was a hotbed of nuclear research. We all know that's where they came up with the nuclear bomb, where they tested it, uh, where the research facilities were, a complete hotbed. And one of the things that you seem to be saying about your research is, is what I hear as well, which is the next big shoe that's going to drop uh, when it and it'll be a big one, is crash wreckage. There seems to be a growing consensus among people like Putoff, as you said, but also Lou Elizondo, who has been pretty out front about saying, yeah, he's pretty sure there's crash wreckage, and even the New York Times. So if there's crash wreckage out there, then it, it doesn't behoove us to dismiss Roswell just because it's old and, and it got confused. Because remember, the people who fought World War II were experts at disinformation. That's how they got Hitler to think that they were crossing at the Pas de Calais instead of Normandy uh, for the D-Day invasion, disinformation. So some of those same people were no doubt employed on disinforming people about the Roswell crash. I think it's a good case. I put its credibility up at 60, 70%. I'd, I'd suggest possibly more. Yeah. You know, it's funny, Bryce. I, 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 as a journo investigating stuff, I'm taught always assume a screw up before a conspiracy. We actually say something slightly more vulgar, but for your listeners, I'll say screw up. <laughs> I think you can um, say the real thing. <laughs> <laughs> but I, 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 I've always thought instinctively that Roswell must have just been one of those things that just blew out of all proportion. But now I'm not so sure. And I'm also getting information from people from all over America and indeed all over the world talking about recovered craft, yeah. recovered technology. And it's one of those perennials that won't go away because Often, there are multiple witnesses to what I'm being told. And when you think about it, I, I guess I've always been worried that it's impossible to keep a secret like this. But the irony is, in New Mexico, at that very time, just a few years earlier, they kept secret the story of the atom bomb, didn't they? Though they not only kept it secret, they kept it secret for years with thousands of people involved in it. So, yeah, uh, people traditionally say, yeah, nobody can keep a secret. Well, when you have the ability to classify it and intimidate people and uh, you're willing to use it, you can keep secrets. And also, you could also argue that the secret hasn't been kept that well. What, what worked is that denial and ridicule. The denial but part is the, the classified part. The ridicule is... Even when you hear something like this, you say it can't be. And, and so, again, I go back to the road that we've traveled and other people are traveling now. If the United States government in 2021 is willing to admit that these craft are real, as they did in the June 25th report, then you have to look at virtually everything else you're thinking about and at least give it some credibility and ask about it. So when I look at the June 25th report, I don't look at 2004 going forward. I look at 2004 going backward and say, what else was happening? And maybe this is part of that big picture, this hidden history that's going to be uncovered over the years to come. Now, Bryce, I know we're near close of show, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention that 
whilst everybody talks about Roswell being the origin story, not the origin myth, perhaps, but the origin story for the great modern UFO era, our friends Jacques Vallée and Paula Mm. Harris have just recently published a book called Trinity, which suggests that there might have been an even earlier crash of a craft that was recovered shortly after the testing of the first atomic bomb in New Mexico in 1945. They do say that. Interesting case, and with witnesses, no less. And they wrote a a book about it. I'll I'll just give you my honest opinion about that. I, I, I think there is a lot less evidence for the Trinity crash story than there is for the Roswell crash story. And even if you dismiss both of them, there seems to be evidence of piling up about other crashes. So again, we get down to that place where, again, a, a skeptical person would go, why are UFOs even crashing? Okay, that is a separate show that we could do 30 minutes on why such a thing could even happen. But it doesn't, I guess, the reality of crash wreckage and recovered materials and possibly even recovered working craft um, doesn't rest entirely on Trinity and it doesn't rest entirely on Roswell. There's some good cases out there beyond the two. I just happen to like Roswell because it is so exhaustively researched and people have taken the time to interview literally everybody who worked at Roswell back in the day. Well, one thing's for sure. 77 years on, Bryce, I think we might this year just about get the beginnings of an answer. But I'm pretty sure we're coming close to the end of this episode of Need to Know. So maybe you might want to make your close and we'll come back with more next program. Okay. well, all I would say to folks is, uh, you know, journalism likes a good anniversary story. And that's why we focused on 1947 today, because it is 75 years. That's a good anniversary time. 75 years since the Kenneth Arnold sighting, 75 years since uh, Roswell, 75 years since the Twining Memo, 75 years since the U.S. Air Force was created in the NSA and the CIA. So I think there's going to be some anniversary pieces that start getting written for this summer and for this year in general that may turn into investigations. And if a couple of those investigations really come through, we may see some powerful journalism out of it. And I I really, my fingers are crossed that that's what happens. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, for listening to this episode of Need to Know. And listen, we want to hear from uh, our listeners, our viewers. Uh, If you have something you want to communicate to us, uh, we're easy to find. The email address is contact at needtoknow.today. And also there's a website there, needtoknow.today, where you can go and check out all this for yourself. So we're happy to have you here. Remember, folks, we can't handle the truth. People get ready.